We're going to start in verse 17, and we'll make our way down to verse 24. I'll read aloud. You can follow along on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were, brought, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You may be seated. Join me in just a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you give us today our daily bread? We need you to feed us with your word. And so I'm asking that you would please hear this prayer, give us what we need, speak to us by your spirit. Strengthen your church and your word. For your glory, I ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. <clears throat> I just wish things were different. Chris complained to his father as they sat on his father's porch one day after work. My job is exhausting. They don't pay me hardly anything what I'm worth. Beth and I, we don't see eye to eye any longer. Our kids are always fighting. I'm tired, Dad. I just want out. This cannot be God's will for me. Chris's dad sat and listened to his son and tried his best to encourage him and to console him and to remind him of God's goodness despite his difficult circumstances, but he couldn't seem to convince him of this truth. So Chris's dad did for him what he had done so many times before. He bowed his head and he prayed for him. And as Chris was getting in his car and getting ready to back out of his dad's driveway, his dad went over to the window and said, Chris, I I wondered maybe tomorrow if you'd come back to the house. Tomorrow I want to show you something. So Chris said, okay. The next day after work, Chris came by the house to find his dad in the front yard on his hands and knees looking for something. So Chris got out and said, Dad, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for your mother's ring. You know that it's all that I have left of her. So Chris said, well, Dad, let me, let me help you. So the two got on their hands and knees, and for quite some time, they looked through the grass, trying to find the ring, until finally Chris said, Dad, where did you drop the ring? Chris's dad said, in the house. So Chris said, Dad, if you drop the ring in the house, 
Why are we on our hands and knees out here in the yard looking for the ring? So his dad paused, stood up, brushed off his pants, and he said, my son, I know you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, a difficult situation, one that you've never planned, one that you would never plan for your life. But I did this because I wanted to show you what my words were not conveying. I wanted to show you that what you are looking for won't be found outside of the life that God has given to you. What he ha- where he has you is exactly where you ought to be. So don't give up. Well, this little story is a fictional one. But it illustrates what has been Paul's message to some in the church in Corinth who find themselves in what seems like a hopeless situation, whether that be in marriage or in singleness. And as we come across these little, these little eight verses here, this little section, it seems like possibly a digression in Paul's argument. But these verses are actually the hinge for what has preceded and for what will proceed after it. In these verses, Paul is getting to the point of the chapter and he states it three times in these eight verses. And so I used to do this sometimes. If I could put this whole uh, sermon into one sentence, this is what it would be. Paul is trying to show his readers that there, that our life situation, if you're a Christian, our life situation has been assigned to us by a loving father to remind us of his never-ending faithfulness to us. I'm going to say that again. Our situation has been assigned to us by a loving father to remind us of his never-ending faithfulness to us. And if you don't like my words and you prefer the words of Charles Spurgeon, for example, I'll give you his. He says, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. These eight verses, friends, are Paul's attempt to unpack what he means when he says, remain where you are with God, whether you're married happily or unhappily. Whether you are single or divorced or widowed, some version of being unmarried. Now, of course, Paul is speaking to those who are in relationships, but we could apply this to so many of our own circumstances, can't we? We could apply it to our current career path. We could apply this to the city that we live in. We could apply this to the church that we're a part of. So, friends, again, we find ourselves studying a very practical portion of Scripture. And we want to try to answer some of these questions that rise in our minds when we read this. Questions like, is it possible to be content in a difficult life situation? Is it possible? Is contentment possible? Further, can that hard situation be the the soil out of which the best fruit is grown in the Christian's life? Paul's answer to this question is yes and yes. But friends, in whatever life situation God has called you and me to on the path of discipleship with Jesus, our Father wants us to see 
what Chris's father wanted him to see. He wants us to see that where we are is where he is. Here is where grace flows to God's people most freely. So friends, don't give up. Don't give up. If you're taking notes this morning and you want a title for this sermon, let's just say the title is A Rule for Every Church. A Rule for Every Church. We're going to study this passage under two headings. The first is the command to remain, and the second is the grace to obey. The first is the command, the second is the grace. Let's look at these together. The command to remain, that's the first one. Now, I I won't tire of reminding us of the set of circumstances in Corinth that provide the basis for Paul's instruction. Again, in chapter 7, Paul is responding to a series of questions that this church asked Paul specifically with regard to marriage. Evidently, there were some people in the body who found themselves wondering how they're going to live as a new Christian within the confines of their present relationships. And so what happened is you had single people who were wondering if being a Christian meant that they ought to go get married, and then you had married people who were wondering if being a Christian meant that they should end their marriages. It's like the flies that hang outside my door. Every time I open the door, flies fly in. You have flies on the outside that can't wait to get inside, but you have flies on the inside that can't wait to get outside. This is what's happening in Paul's church here. What do we do with regard to relationships, with marriage? And so they're wondering, they're asking these questions, and they're, and they're wondering questions like, is discipleship with Jesus compatible to my life circumstance? Can I truly honor the Lord, for example, in a difficult marriage or a mixed marriage where I'm a believer and my spouse is not, or as an unmarried man or as an unmarried woman? So Paul has been saying yes all along so far. We've seen that the last couple of Sundays. Adjusting to your life situation as a Christian does demand self-giving love. Yes, it does depend upon God's sustaining grace, but it is absolutely possible. So here's the command. This is what he's getting at in verse 17. Remain where you are. In fact, Paul says this three times in just eight verses. Verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24. Remain in the condition you were in when God called you. Now, a series of three in Scripture often points to something that's to be reinforced. It's it's something of significance. Think of the cherubim in Isaiah chapter 6 when they cried out, Holy, holy, holy to the Lord. They were were exclaiming the, the perfection of God's holiness. They wanted Isaiah to see how perfectly holy the Lord is. Or maybe take Jesus, for example, in John 21, after he had risen from the dead, and he went to Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then he followed that with three instructions, all the same. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He's reinforcing the importance of what he's saying. And Paul knows that this letter is a a letter that's going to be read aloud to this church. So by repeating these three commands here in such close succession, just as he has been reinforcing throughout the chapter, Paul really wants to make sure that if they take anything from him about their situation, that they take this. 
That is that the life that Paul's readers find themselves in, here it is, has been assigned to them, ultimately not selected or chosen by them. Yes, they made decisions to get them where they are, and God was working in those decisions in order to direct a path that would most optimally display his glory through these people. This word assigned in the ESV means to apportion, to to separate into parts and to distribute. The same word is used later. Paul will use this word later in reference to the Holy Spirit, distributing or apportioning spiritual gifts to the church. Let me give you a poor example. The other night, uh, we were having dinner with some friends who brought over a delicious chocolate gluten-free cake so I could eat it. And when the time came... We cut it into portions, and we gave it out. I gave it out. Some in the room asked for a smaller piece because they, you know, they're wanting to stay trim. So they said, just give me a small piece. The kids always ask for a piece two times bigger than the adults get. But for most of the table, I just cut what I thought was an appropriate size piece. I didn't take out a ruler. I cut out what I thought worked good for this group, and I passed out this delicious cake. That's the idea Paul is trying to capture here. In his perfect wisdom, God first called these believers to salvation. That's what he started the letter letter with. In chapter 1, verse 2, you are called to be saints. But then you are to work out your calling within the framework of the specific life situation that God has cut up and apportioned to you. So so there's been a a begetting into Christ, that's salvation, but they are to now live out this begetting within the confines of a certain setting in Christ, their situation. I like how the message paraphrase captures this. It says, don't be wishing you were someplace else or with somebody else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. And Paul teaches this everywhere. Every church he goes to, he teaches the same thing. The Corinthians are no exception, though I think they thought they were. But Paul, ever the pastor, knows that in making such an unqualified comment, he's going to raise some questions especially for those readers who find themselves, in particular, in a difficult situation. From the outside, Paul can easily see that a hard situation is covered with the fingerprints of a loving father who is forcing bad things to work for their good. And if Joseph was there, he would say, yes, amen, just hold on, my brothers and sisters, it's going to work out. And how easy is it it for all of us, friends, when we look at someone, a friend, a loved one, going through a hard situation, and we just know, we have way more faith than they do, that God's working in this situation. This is going to work out. But Paul knows, he has a heart for this church, and he knows these Corinthians are struggling. How can I be faithful in my marriage, Paul, as a Christian? How can I be faithful in my setting, Paul? So as a good pastor, Paul preempts that question by presenting 
two scenarios or illustrations that are super odd to us, but were very common in the first century to sort of tease out this command to ultimately show, yes, faithfulness is possible. And the first is a, a socio-ethnic illustration that pertains to someone's racial heritage. And the second is a socio-economic illustration. It pertains to one's social standing or class. Let's look at briefly, briefly at each of these. Look first at verse 18. I'm going to reread it. Was anyone, among, uh, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, if you're a brand new Christian, that has got to be the strangest thing you've heard today. For us, as modern Americans, circumcision is like completely irrelevant to us. It's if you had a baby boy, it's something that you probably did with your baby boy just after birth for hygienic and for health reasons. But in the first century, circumcision was a huge deal. Circumcision was a sign of one's Jewish heritage, and uncircumcision pretty much covered everyone else. And the church in Corinth is made up of both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. And in case you're wondering, how did anybody know who was circumcised and who was not, you have to understand an interesting fact. We get our word gymnasium, gym, from the Greek word gumnos, which simply means naked. Yes, that's right. Men in the first century exercised in the buff, naked. So whether you were a Jew or a non-Jew, if you exercised regularly, which most people did, everybody knew who you were. Everybody knew if you were a Jew or you were a Gentile. So evidently, there were some in the church who, when they were called, that is, when they were converted, they felt that their ethnic heritage was a hindrance to being a follower of Jesus. And so Paul's saying, no, my brothers and sisters, when God saves a man or a woman, he comes to them right where they are. They don't come to him trying to give evidence of their worthiness. No, salvation is in no way dependent on an individual's racial or ethnic distinctions like circumcision here, for example, in our case, color. So Paul says, were you a Jew when God saved you? Don't attempt to remove the marks of your Jewishness. Don't, don't attempt to hide it. Were you a Greek when God saved you? Don't listen to those who would try to minimize your Greekness and convince you to adopt religious symbolism that's only for the Jews. Socio-ethnic characteristics contribute nothing to your salvation. In Christ, just as he told the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Circumcision or uncircumcision marries very little. What matters, dear ones, is how you live before the face of God and whatever condition you find yourself in. Does it mean that one's ethnicity is irrelevant? Certainly not. God is the one who created race. 
God is the one who created color. Ethnic heritage is a function of God's creativity, and it ought to be celebrated. But Paul will not have anyone making ethnicity or any associated cultural or religious practice a prerequisite for salvation, whether positively or negatively. Our standing before God is based squarely on the merits of Jesus Christ. Second, he talks about a socioeconomic picture or illustration. Look at verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Okay, again, jump back with me into the first century. We here in the West, when we hear the word slavery, immediately think of the horrific slave trade that was only ended 150 years ago. Some of us in this room were around during the civil rights movement 50 or 60 years ago. We think slavery, we hear slavery, we think of something totally different than Paul's readers thought or heard. When Paul here speaks of slavery, that's that word bondservant, we need to remember that in the, the Greco-Roman world, it was a, a slave culture. Up to one-third of the population in Corinth were slaves. Another one-third were freedmen or former or manumitted slaves who still live with their owners, and as, as a job, they rendered them service. You see, people became slaves for economic reasons, not because of their race in the first century. Some were born into slavery, but others chose to sell themselves into slavery simply to survive. So they had food to eat, so they had a place to live. But listen, slaves were not legally persons. They had no human rights. They were living pieces of property. Now, assuming the church in Corinth was a carbon copy of its culture, this means that six out of every ten of Paul's hearers were at least once a slave or were currently a slave. Six out of every, let's say half. So again, Paul has this rule in his mind. Remain where you are. Not just for the heck of it, but because this condition has been ordained by God as the most suitable one to confirm his faithfulness to you. This will become clearer next week, but for now, Paul's simply saying, be a Christian where you are. Be a Christian where you are. So he says here, were you a slave when God saved you? Don't be troubled by your station in life. Now, by all means, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Freedom is the preferred option. But if you cannot, if you cannot, don't forget who your true master is. You are a Christian before you are a slave. And that makes you a freedman in Christ. Your first obligation is to him. You belong to him. And the same applies to a person who is never a slave. You see, friends, in Christ, there are no racial and social and gender distinctions. 
do those matter? Absolutely. And if you were living in the wrong place at the wrong time as the wrong class or wrong race, you would know about it. But Paul's argument is that these external distinctions have zero effect on one's ability to be faithful to God and honor him where they are. And in fact, one's life station has been given by God to produce the greatest possible opportunity to be a committed follower of Jesus. Take this how you will, but your station right now is an evidence of the grace of God in your life. In no other station could you better serve the Lord because if there was a better one, he would place you there. Now, friends, Paul wrote this to unmarried and married people and single people in mind, but we can easily see how this can be applied to any situation that God ordains for us. Apply it to your economic situation. Apply it to your extended family relationships. Apply it to the career path that you're on. Apply it to the wonderful and difficult calling of child rearing. Whatever setting that we wake up to tomorrow is precisely the one that God has chosen for us, for our greatest good and for his highest praise. Now let's get real honest today. If we're honest with ourselves, with the scripture, with the Lord, that is far easier to accept when life is going well, isn't it? If Paul was writing to a happily married couple that were both believers and they had wonderful children and all was going well, they'd be saying amen to the reading of this letter. But you had others that were in situations where their family was falling apart and their life was stressful and their season of life seemed like an unending season. This would have been a hard word. And maybe it is for some of you. So is Paul saying we should never seek to improve our situation? No. He says plainly here that freedom is preferred over forced servitude. There's nothing noble, friends, about suffering just to suffer for suffering's sake. That's what ascetics do. But we have to proceed carefully here. Every culture has its issues, but we, we red-blooded Americans are convinced of something that was possibly very foreign to Paul's readers. We red-blooded Americans are convinced that we should always be bettering ourselves. Aren't we? There's always someone in a better life situation than we are. Every day we encounter people who are in a far better life situation than we are. Just last week I was visiting a friend who lives over by the, uh, the uh, uh, inlet. And he has a, a brand new house, and he has a brand new truck, and he has an old vintage redone vehicle in his garage. And 
he has a swimming pool with a slide, and I was talking to him outside as he was using his smoker and smoking the dinner for that evening. <laughs> and I finished the conversation, and I got in the car with my two boys, which is a 2006 Honda, and I drove off, and I have to confess to you, I was subconsciously coveting this man's life, his lifestyle. The temptation that we have as Christians is always to be driving after this dream that we Americans have been given. The temptation always is to make big decisions with the goal in mind of our betterment. betterment. Taking a job or, or buying a house or even choosing a church. And we ask, how does this decision serve the end goal of making my life better? But dear ones, when we make life movements, do we consider the things that Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see those and see those as the lenses through which we look at our lives? How does the decision that I'm about to make make me a better husband, a better father? How does this big decision make me a more committed church member where I, can, where I can use my gifts for the good of the body? How does this adjustment enable me and my family to love with a self-giving love and to depend upon God's sustaining grace? Friends, I fear that even though the call to remain is a universal command for every church, it's seldom obeyed in our Western culture. We have been lured away by the attractive invitation to better ourselves for the sake of our own comforts, and God is nowhere in the equation when we make our decisions. That ought to make us cringe. Friends, if we are married here today, Paul says that that station that you've been called to is what God has chosen for you to produce maximum fruitfulness to him. If you can stay in, stay in. If your money is thin, in God's economy, Poverty is the grace that he has given to you and me because he knows how much we really need him. If your job is draining you of life, until God moves you out of there, he's apportioned that job for you, for you to honor him there. If the house that we have is not as nice as another house and doesn't have all the features that we would want to have, listen, God has given you that house where you are now as a sanctuary of mercy for others. That place is a gift. It might not have a fifth bedroom, but that place is a gift it's a place of mercy. Guys, if we belong to God through Christ, the life that we're looking for is not found out in some other green pasture that God hasn't called us to. Not until he leads us there. Now that's a tough word, but who can receive it? Who can receive it? A little bit more time left. 
So where do we go from here? Thankfully, again, ever the pastor, Paul wants to help. Paul ends with a truth that is meant to give his readers the strength to stand fast in a less than ideal situation. So we're going to end with the second point, the grace to obey. The grace to obey. Look again at verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now we've We've heard of the beginning part of verse 23 before, haven't we? Remember chapter 6? You were bought with a price, therefore honor God in your body, glorify God in your body. Paul repeats it here. And there is in this phrase a truth that I think Paul wanted to resonate with everyone in the church, regardless of their ethnicity or economic or marital status. Now I'm going to talk slowly here because I really, really want us to get this. This is the truth he's talking about. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. When Jesus died on the cross for us in our place, he died to reconcile us in the sight of God. His death, listen, his death was the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that no longer would we be the objects of God's wrath. Reconciliation. But friends, that's only half of what Jesus' death accomplished. Jesus died not to bring us into a state of neutrality before God, where our sins were erased, not just to give us, make us friendly with God and give us friendly, friendly relations with God. That's reconciliation. No, Paul is saying that Jesus died to redeem us to God. Now listen, redemption implies possession. It refers to ownership. Paul is talking about property. Now if a slave in Paul's day wanted to be free, what they would do is this. They would collect any little bit of money they could. And they didn't make a lot, so it took them a long time. And what they would do is is they would take that money and they would go down to their favorite temple of choice, to the God that they worshipped, and they would deposit that money in the bank at the temple. The priest would hold on to it for them. And when they accrued just enough money, what the priest would do is, is in a little ceremony, he would gather the slave's owner and the slave And there would be a little ceremony, and he would give the money, the full price, to the slave owner, and the slave would be freed, and he would come under the possession of the God that was worshipped in that temple. He would become its property. Now, Paul is saying that regardless of one's status in life when God saved them, If you're a believer, the price of your redemption has been paid in full, 
not by us because no price is so great enough that we could offer us to God for him to accept us. No, but by the shed blood of Jesus' sinless life so that we would belong to God. Jesus paid the price of redemption not only to make us acceptable to God, but to make us his possession. So what does that mean for a difficult marriage or a sickness in the family or a financial burden? Well, friends, right now in heaven, right now in this very moment, listen to this amazing news. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me and the station that he's assigned for us. Romans 8, 34. And right now in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, and in all of heaven, I have no idea what this would look like, there is only one thing there that is man-made. And that one thing is the scars and the hands and the feet and the side of our Savior. And for all of eternity, no one who ever stands in the presence of Jesus will ever, ever, ever forget what it cost him to bring to God a people for his own possession. And you know, friends, I believe that as Christ intercedes for us day and night at the right hand of the Father, so much of his intercession is without words. All the Father needs to do is look upon those wounds wherein his people's names are inscribed as the evidence of his love. That love governs your life circumstance. That love is the reason why God will never, ever leave us or forsake us. His faithfulness to us makes our faithfulness to him possible. Now, friends, I'm I'm closing here. Is there room in our theology for a God who assigns to his people difficult situations because he loves us enough to remind us that he'll never cease to be faithful to us to the end. We are not where we are strictly due to a complex string of choices that we have made or events that have happened to us. No, all the while, God has been with us working in those movements to fulfill his good purposes for us. Friends, let's not allow our heart theology, our functional theology, to override our head theology, what we know is true. Let's not start rationalizing, saying, if I had only made better choices, if I had not gone to that house that night, if I had just done my research, I would have bought a better car. If I had not gone out on that date, if I only had better parents, if I had only been a better parent. Friends, listen, there is no grace for us in the ifs. If you want grace for your need, you need to do away with the if that's coming out of your mouth. If. If betrays a theology that sees God as a God way out there, watching, cringing, 
but never really present in our circumstances. Paul says, be done with that. Brothers, sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. This has been mine and my wife's experience, Michelle. Last year, beginning of 2021, Michelle was suddenly faced with some very difficult health issues, came out of nowhere. And so from about January to about May was the darkest time in, at that point, our 16-year-long marriage. I can say this now because I look back. It was all we could do to gather here on Sunday mornings. We stood in the front row of that old place, and I held Michelle while she cried. We were wearing masks then, so nobody could see her. And it was that way every Sunday for four months straight. And she was faithful, and she came because She's a good Christian woman, as we like to say here in the South. She loves the Lord. She wanted to be with God's people. But I'm telling you, it was hard. And we cried together, and we prayed together, and we bickered a whole lot. Eventually, Michelle was able to get the right course of treatment, and, and she got better, and she's, praise God, just the same old Michelle today. But I'm telling you, there was a time when we wondered for a long time what God was doing to us. Not for us, not with us, not through us, but to us. What is God doing to us? But today we look back. And I can tell you that, and this is not just to prove a sermon point, I can tell you that in no time in our marriage than last year has God proven more clearly, more faithfully, more lovingly to us, that he really is the ever-present help in our time of need. That he holds our lot. That he is our chosen portion. That he knows every need that we have before we ask him. He proved the reality of his word to us time and time again. Friends, do you have a theology that includes with God in it? Do you have a theology that parks you right where you are in the season of life that you are, but then you add at the end, with God? You must, because where we are, he is there. Whether we are healthy or sick or rich or poor or happy or depressed or full or hungry or on cloud nine or at our wit's end, we are there with God because we are his possession now. And there he will prove to us that he is good. I was talking with Aaron the other day about this text. And he said that phrase, with God, has comforted me, comforted me so many times. And, and he, said, he said, you know, brother, if I found out that I was going to be in prison for the next 15 years, I had a sentence of prison for the next 15 years, that would be very, very hard news. He said, but if I knew that Andrea was going to be there, if I knew that you were going to be there, that would be okay. 
I would be comforted by that fact. That would totally transform my perspective. Friends, God wants a transformed perspective for Grace City Church. He wants to to put in us a conscious awareness of his nearness, no matter what station he has assigned to us. If we know the Lord is at hand, even as in a prison cell, we know that no matter what happens to us, we will never have to wonder if one day he'll stop being faithful to us. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is this. Bloom where you are planted. Bloom where you are planted. Listen, there may come a day when you are no longer married. That may happen. But listen, Paul's saying, that's not your concern right now. Right now, pour out your heart and life for the husband or wife that God has given you. Endeavor to love your spouse more than you need your spouse. Little Ed Welch there for you. Love and honor the one that you're with right now with God. Friends, there may come a time when God moves you on from Grace City Church, but if he's led you into the membership here right now, don't just coast along until something better comes along, until you hear about a new church and a new preacher in town. Don't just coast along. No, Grow where you are. Bear fruit where you are. Jump in with both feet and enter into the lives of this, the people in this church and grow here at Grace City Church with God. Friends, there will come a day when your kids are grown and gone. But listen, that's not your concern right now. Keep praying for them. Keep modeling Jesus to them, not perfectly, but faithfully. Prioritize family worship with them, even when they hate it. But be mom and be dad with God. There will come a day, maybe, maybe not, when God gives you a new career path because God's planned a new career for you. But God says, don't be concerned about that right now. When you wake up tomorrow, Fill your heart with my word. Ask me for mercy. Make your soul happy in me. Then go to work and serve and speak for me with me. Friends, what we are looking for won't be found outside of the life that God has given to us. Where he has us right now is exactly where he wants us to be. So bloom where you're planted and don't give up. Let's pray. Lord, we want to confess and repent. Of the fleshly craving for that which you have not apportioned to us. Now, Lord, we know that you give us desires, we know that you've given us a bigger purpose than sometimes we can see right now. But Lord, I fear that so often we look past what you're doing now because we're so concerned about getting to that purpose that we miss out on the good that you have for us here. Please forgive us, Lord, 
Please forgive us for forgetting that our lives are not our own, that our righteousness is in heaven, that we were bought with a price, and that no good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Convince us of this hard but beautiful truth. For your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name.